Welcome to Wild Women, hosted by Camille and Sarah. This is a podcast about mind, body, and pleasure, an honest talk on all things self-care. We discuss issues related to dating, fitness, beauty, mental health. We also discuss stuff about social issues, and we often have interviewees that come up and tell us a little bit about their businesses or their inspirations or motivations or just their journey through some type of recovery. For those of you who haven't listened to us before, this is our second season. Let's dive in. Welcome to Wild Women. So today we have a special guest to talk about Indigenous issues. Camille, can you introduce us? Yes, so today we have Kirsten Dumont, and she's an activist, a model, and a creator. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work? Yeah, for sure. So right now I work full-time for the Government of Canada. I also do activism and advocacy work within the community. I've spoken in Parliament Hill in the House of Commons. I've spoken on Parliament Hill on Canada Day as well. I've spoken to multiple organizations around and in Canada, such as UNICEF, the Child Welfare League, and multiple child aid uh, organizations. I also work with school boards, churches, and many different grassroots Indigenous-led organizations to help bridge the gap between Indigenous peoples and the settlers currently living on our territory. That's amazing. I like that you said settlers. So do you want to explain a little bit to people that don't know what that means? Yeah, for sure. So growing up in Canada, I really started to learn about the real history of Indigenous peoples. And that being said, um, the first peoples who stepped foot on Canada and within Canada, and as we call it, Turtle Island. Settlers, per se, is a word that we use for peoples who do not have Indigenous ancestry and who are currently living in Canada itself. So a settler can be anyone from a refugee to someone who was born here in Canada, but doesn't necessarily have Indigenous ancestry running through their veins. Thank you. Um, So what are your experiences as an activist and what motivated you to become one? Thank you for that question, Sarah. It's a very good question. I think what motivated me the most was my grandfather, Albert Dumont, who is currently an elder knowledge keeper and a human rights activist himself. My grandfather really reminded me that Indigenous youth voices especially are not heard at the everyday table whenever we're having discussions. And a lot of these discussions that are being had on this territory have to deal with Indigenous youth. And who is better equipped to understand the Indigenous youth mind than another Indigenous youth themselves? And once I started to think of that a little more, I started to realize the need for this the need for an Indigenous youth advocate and activist within this area. We have a lot of frontliners, but there's not many people who, I guess, work within organizations. And there's many organizations who won't necessarily hire youth themselves because they feel that they aren't knowledgeable enough as an adult would be. Hmm. And throughout my activism and advocacy work, I started to learn the value that my voice held and the importance that it had within it. 
And although I might've come across organizations and people who don't necessarily value my voice because of my age, I've definitely met people along my journey that will value me as much as they value an elder. Mm -hmm. Um, You talk about your voice a lot. So what's the importance of like words, current language around those issues and then using your voice for issues that matters to you? Yes, you know, I've started doing this work in about 2018, only a few years ago, and every day is a learning curve for me. Every day I look back on different presentations or different youth mentorships that I've done, and I think back to what I could have done better, what I could have said differently, and it's definitely about continuously learning no matter how old you are, and that's something that my family has also taught me was the fact of you know, you're never going to be perfect in what you say. There's always going to be people out there who don't necessarily agree with what you say. They might feel that you could have used a different word or said it in a different context, but realistically, nobody can tell you that your truth isn't valid because that's your lived experience. That's your lived truth. And no one knows your lived truth better than you do. When you think of the kind of words that you can use, I think that definitely jumps off of the fact that when we look back to what we could have done better Mm -hmm. and every day I continuously look back to what I could have said differently what I could have added and sometimes I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't mention certain things but at the end of the day I know that I'll get another opportunity where I can bring the situation up again Mm. I love that you're talking about like learning every day because I do agree with that and I think a lot of people are afraid of speaking out because they're afraid of saying something wrong. So what what would be your advice to someone that's afraid of being a wrong ally? I think when it comes with allyship, you know, and I mentioned this a little bit within my, I guess, social media platforms. When you're being an ally, you really need to amplify Indigenous voices. So not necessarily speaking for Indigenous people, but ensuring that their voices are heard in a westernized setting. A lot of the times when I speak with the government or organizations, that's a very westernized colonial setting. And the allies that stand behind me ensure that my voices are heard. They ensure that, oh, you know, we miss Kirsten. Would Kirsten like to say anything? And they always ensure that my voice gets to have a second to speak and be heard and I think that that's really important when thinking about allyship is you're not necessarily speaking for the people or the culture but you're bringing them up to speak for themselves and when it comes to people who are unsure or scared I would recommend to always just ask you know there's no there's nothing wrong in asking a question and I think within this day and age 2021 that like the question of allyship and what revolves around it needs to be asked more because Indigenous people aren't going to condemn you for wondering how to be a better ally. If anything, they're going to uplift you. They're going to bring you up to help you become better allies to walk alongside us. And that's a lot of the work that I do within the community is the fact of bridging that gap between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous peoples. Because as soon as we start to work together, we'll be so much stronger than if we were fighting against each other or working against each other. So that's what I see whenever I do my activism and advocacy work in the community. I love that. So do you have like an opinion on performative activism? I think that when we talk about performative activism, Uh, You know, I've been at multiple protests 
and multiple, I guess, even just walks and stuff to raise awareness for certain things. And when it comes to the non-Indigenous allies that are there with us, I always remind them because there are situations that can be dangerous. There are situations that can be scary. And a lot of the time, these scary situations are revolving around the Indigenous peoples, not necessarily the non-Indigenous peoples. So there's many different ways that you can be performative and action-oriented by, you know, if a cop comes up to somebody, you put yourself in front of this person to ensure that they're safe, as a lot of the statistics show that non-Indigenous people aren't harmed as much as Indigenous people are. But whenever I say these things to my allies, I always remind them that if there's a situation that feels too dangerous for them or that they're scared of getting hurt, do not put your life on the line. There's nothing wrong with wanting to keep yourself safe because there are ways that you can keep other people safe around you while doing that. Even pulling up your phone and recording a situation helps so much. There's so many different ways that allies can... I guess, fight with us, stand with us, and be action-oriented with us that don't necessarily put their own lives on the line as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Thank you for that. Now, what issues are the most urgent for Indigenous people in Canada, in your opinion? You know, in my opinion, I guess I speak a lot about the missing and murdered Indigenous women issue. And that's something that I really spoke about when I was in the House of Commons. And when speaking about this ongoing topic, I think about my sister who's 10 years younger than me. I'm 20 years old, my sister is 10, and I wonder about the world that she will be able to live in when she's my age. I wonder about the person that she will be when she's 30, 40, or has her own kids. What kind of world will we see then? Mm. I think that once Indigenous peoples can feel safe on their own lands and their own territories, that's when we can start working towards even bigger issues, such as the water crisis, mm -hmm. such as the land crisis, the pollution crisis, as these are all important. And I don't think that one is necessarily more important than the other, but we cannot continuously do this kind of work if we don't feel safe on our own grounds. There's so many issues revolving around man camps and man camps happen when pipelines get put into our lands. And these man camps actually also revolve around the missing and murdered Indigenous women statistic, as these men are located near reserves most of the time. And a lot of the time, women go missing due to these man camps because there are men out there that don't see value in our Indigenous women as Indigenous peoples do. I've done a lot of research about this specific topic, and it really in my opinion, circles around every single situation that we are currently dealing with in Canada. How can we protest a pipeline if we are too scared of the men that are creating it? Mm -hmm. How can we protest the government if we are too scared of the government because of the fact that they will not do everything in their possibility to ensure that our women and girls brought home? There's just so much that relies around this topic that I feel that as long as we can start to feel safe and feel protected, by the people that are supposed to be protecting us, then we can do the rest of the work that Creator had put us on this earth to do. I love how passionate you are and like how I think you make it so that everybody can understand how important those issues are. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you, Camille. 
And do you think the pandemic has contributed or increased the discrimination amongst Indigenous people? I know the pandemic has definitely had its whirlwinds. You know, I don't know discrimination itself, but I know that the pandemic has actually led us into poverty even more so than we were before. There are so many people who are unable to get the proper necessities that they would have been able to get from organizations here in Ottawa due to the fact that they can no longer go into these organizations. There's a lot of organizations that still do continuously try to provide their clients with stuff as much as possible. But then again, it's not as easy as being able to go into the building per se and gather what you need. Mm -hmm. I think that this pandemic has really made us think of the world around us. I know that there's Indigenous organizations and youth out there who are trying to bring back uh, food sovereignty. So they're trying to build, uh, grow their own plants, build greenhouses, grow food for generations to come so that they have a way to be able to keep nutrients within their bodies and sustain themselves throughout the winters, the summers, whatever months may be. I know that for myself, the pandemic has been both good and bad in so many different ways. There are a lot of opportunities out there right now to learn stuff from workshops due to everything being virtual. Workshops can now have more participants in them. But at the same time, if you would have to choose your everyday needs and necessities over a workshop, I think that Indigenous youth would choose being able to go back into these buildings and work with these organizations than being able to possibly get into a workshop for, you know, hour to a day. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's also not everybody has access to technology and it comes back to poverty as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I think a lot of settlers don't understand how dire the situation is when it comes to, you know, the water crisis and and stuff amongst those Indigenous communities. Um, Can you talk about those situations and like how dire they actually are? Yeah, for sure. So as I'm sure both of you ladies know, I'm located here in Ottawa, Ontario. My reservation is actually an hour and a half away from Ottawa in on the Quebec side. An hour and a half away, and still some parts within my community do not have clean running water. We are an hour and a half away from the province, the capital of Canada, and still my community does not have clean running water. There have been so many situations where people in my community were afraid of their water jugs being stolen by other people within our community because of the fact of how bad the water crisis is there. I know that for my grandfather, they claim that on his road, the water is safe to drink, but still he does not feel safe enough to drink it. Therefore, he buys jugs, he buys water bottles, whatever can be done. And when we think of the way these communities are built, the fact that when the government had created these small plots of land to place Indigenous peoples on, you would think that these plots of land or these communities would have just as much resources as an everyday city would. Mm. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. When I think of community, I think of 
how strong my community is for being able to persevere no matter what issue is thrown in front of them. And it's just so saddening to know that I, because I grew up in the city, I was privileged. And privilege isn't a word that you will hear coming a lot of coming out of a lot of First Nations and Indigenous people's mouths. But when we look at our home communities, we really do have to acknowledge that we were privileged to grow up in a urbanized city where we could get clean running water. You know, I don't have to boil my water, whereas my community does. I can completely go under my shower. My, there have been communities out there that can't even bathe in their own shower water because of how filthy it is. It's so disappointing whenever I think of it and the fact that my community, my community is still dealing with these things is heartbreaking. It's so depressing because there are so many people within communities that have to leave their own homes to come to urbanized cities just to get basic human needs and human rights. And when we think about that, we start to think about how important we are to the government and why are we any less valued than anyone living in the city. When Trudeau got elected, he claimed that he would uh, abolish, per se, the boil water issue around Canada within a five-year limit. A few months ago, an update came around that he has decided it will take another five years. And there are still, if my math or my statistics are still correct, the last time I checked, there are still 51 Indigenous communities around Canada that do not have clean running water. Mm -hmm. And just the, the absolute disappointment in the fact that there are so many issues revolving around Canada and revolving around Indigenous peoples and we have to start looking at the government itself. But yeah, so when we think about the government and Indigenous peoples, we have to start thinking about the way that they value us. And if the government itself won't value us, then why would everyday Canadian citizens value us? Why would the people who we see every day on the street value us if our own government who is supposed to protect us does not? And I know that racism is talked about a lot, but I don't think the government has talked about enough hmm. about how the way that they view us is almost like a mirror to the way that the everyday Canadian citizen will view us. A lot of the stuff that you hear in the news is the reason why Canadian citizens view us as drunks, alcoholics, you know, drug addictions and prostitutes, so many different stereotypes that are revolved around our people and our women that just don't necessarily add up. And when I think about my community, I really start to think about the education system there as well. And the fact of when I was younger, I wanted to live within my community. I wanted to grow up because yes, I was privileged to grow up in a city with clean running water and a lot of incredible opportunities but I was kept away from learning my culture and the indigenous lifestyle because of the fact that I grew up in an urbanized situation. And when I think about the school up there, it really starts to worry me because their grade 12 education 
is an equivalent to a grade eight education here. Wow. Yeah. So when they start to diminish the education needs within these communities and these youth graduate and decide to go to a bigger city to take college or university, they fall through the cracks of the system due to the fact that they were not ready to go to these places. And, you know, not every single community is like this, but I know that there are multiple communities like this that do not have the proper education as we do here in the city. We just need to start thinking of how we treat or how the government treats indigenous peoples living on reservations and off of reservations. Definitely. And the irony in all this is that it dates back all the way to Marxist literature, where he yeah. states that the government is the executive committee for the privileged, right? So it's crazy to think that we still haven't realized that the government is part of like the root of that issue. You know what I mean? But yeah. I, I think there's a lot of censoring going on, especially during the pandemic. You know, the government wants yeah. us to you know, believe whatever they're saying. And I think a lot of voices, like I said, are just being censored right now, what, like regarding any issue that's not related to getting a vaccine, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's awful. Now, have you ever experienced systematic oppression in your life at all? I've definitely experienced racism and situations that were unjustly when I was in about the sixth grade per se I was learning about my people for the first time and a young boy in our classroom had pointed to the screen and said isn't that a savage like you and I was very taken aback by the situation I always knew about these slurs I always knew that there was racism around Canada but I had never faced it firsthand. I grew up hearing stories of my mother and my grandfather about how they dealt with racism and oppression. And I thought that because I was very pale skinned and my features weren't as noticeable that I could almost be white passing. And, you know, I did grow up in two different worlds from a, different situations where I was white passing and then different situations where people could visibly tell that I was indigenous. And unfortunately, that was just one of them. And I always grew up in a very prideful family of our Algonquin heritage. My family was never scared to be who they were. They were never ashamed to be indigenous or have indigenous blood running through their veins. So when I had this situation happen to me, I was very conflicted, very confused, didn't know what to do. I went to my grandfather the next day. I told him about the situation, asked him what I should have done. And he advised me that I will always meet people in my lifetime, no matter how young or old, that will dislike me because of my bloodline, that will dislike me because of my heritage and my culture. I was very confused in the sixth grade because I didn't understand the hatred. I thought that our world had become more caring than the world that my mother and my grandfather grew up in. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. I went up to my teacher the next day, told her about the situation and nothing was done. 
And when I think about it now, I should not have had to go up to her to explain how hurt I was because of the fact that she was in the room when this happened. She was visibly present when this young man called me a savage when I was about 11 years old. I grew up having this memory stuck in my head because still to this day I am confused but I don't I don't condemn this young man I'm not mad at him I'm not angry because now that I am older I think differently now and the way that I look at it is the fact of kids are not born racist Mm. kids are not born with these thoughts in their head the comments that this young man had made stemmed from his own parents and stemmed from the childhood that he had, that he grew up in, and the household that he was brought up in. I was always taught to love people no matter their skin color, no matter their background, no matter their heritage. So I was always a very caring person and still am. I almost feel a sense of apology and sadness for this young man due to the fact that he clearly grew up grew up in a household that did not like people that did not look like them and I start to think of my mother when she was in about the fourth grade she was walking to the store with my grandmother she waited outside and my grandmother is a very visibly white woman. She has Irish ancestry. My mother is half Algonquin, half Irish. And my grandmother went inside. My mom stayed outside. They were living in the Glebe at this point. It was just a store right down the house, right down the street from their house. A man had exited the store and walked past my mom, noticed that she had very tan skin and very visibly indigenous features. My mother was in the fourth grade when she was spat in the face by a grown man. She didn't even wipe it off of her face because she was worried that her mother would not believe her. Two minutes later, my grandmother walked outside, seen what would happen. And unfortunately the man was no longer there. But that situation, just like mine, stayed in my mother's head for as long as she can remember. And situations like these make us confused about why people do not appreciate the color of our skin or our heritage just as much as we do. I think that when raising children, especially, we need to raise them with values that lie within diversity of Canada, that lie within the difference, the different people that you will find within Canada because obviously Canada is not filled with, you know, settlers or like white people per se. There's people of all different ethnicities. And when we're raising kids, we need to raise them with love, with gratitude, with appreciation for all cultures. I think that racism could be lessened if we start raising loving children instead of raising hateful adults. I can't even imagine like how hurtful that must be I'm sure that it has happened to many many people yeah and I think that part of the problem might also be that like in school 
they don't like the system doesn't teach us like the right history yeah i remember in my class in university now i just found out events that happened and that are like awful and that happen right here in canada and yet we don't learn about it in like high school or in elementary school yeah and one thing that we have to remember too is that these histories were not written by the indigenous people it was written by settlers so like the truth that they had come up with is not really the voices of the indigenous people we're not actually learning you know Mm -hmm from them and we're not learning the right history. And I studied a lot about indigenous studies this year. And one of the anthropologists uh, actually wrote an article about the anthropology of refusal. And basically what she means by that is that um, researchers refusing to write about something that they don't have the right to write about. And you know, that includes, you know, a history that you haven't lived, that includes, you know, like, I guess, imposing on people's histories when they don't want to talk about it, or when they don't want you talking about it. And I think that's really important. And it goes back to what you said about that allyship, where we should, you know, give you the stage or give you the ability to hear your voice, you know, And going back to, you know, Indigenous communities and heritages and so on, can you tell us about what the role of women in Indigenous communities? Yeah, so, um, I mean, every community is different. I know that for a majority of them, the women hold titles of matriarchy, which is a woman leader. Therefore, a lot of the time, women would be the frontliners of situations women would be the warriors within the, I guess, protests, walks, ceremonies. And a lot of the time women are the, per se, like almost like the head of the household. So when indigenous peoples are raised by matriarchs, they grow up to be strong, caring men, strong women. And for my household, I grew up a single child therefore my mother was a matriarch in my eyes and that's why I am who I am today is because I was raised with the utmost compassion diversity and respect for all peoples women have a very sacred role to play in indigenous communities no matter what it may be we call the earth mother earth due to the fact that there's always water around it Uh, And it's almost like the water that we hold within our stomachs when we're carrying a child. So Indigenous people see that we are all children of Mother Earth or children of the Creator. And there's definitely different communities have different laws and ideals, such as hereditary chiefs. And, you know, not all chiefs are necessarily women. Some are men, some are this, some are that. But within the the majority of the communities women are viewed as matriarchs and the strong title holders within the family if that makes sense Mm. and um i read in some of my lectures that women are also the protectors of water Mm. does that resonate with your community or 
yes, so we have water protectors in multiple communities and outside of communities. I know of a few water protectors as well that live here in Ottawa in an urban city. Basically, these women will conduct water walks. They will conduct water ceremonies. I unfortunately have never been a part of one. I plan to hopefully dive into different ceremonies a little more this year due to covid it's definitely made ceremonies for Indigenous people a lot harder because of social distancing and stuff. But yes, women are the caretakers of the water, the lakes, the rivers, so on and so forth. And that's why when water crisis will occur, you'll see a lot of women talking about this specific issue. Very cool. Now, in the last year, what collaborations have you done and what are some of like your favorite missions of these collaborations that support Indigenous people? So I have been working alongside the Child Welfare League for about a year and a half now. And I would say that that's definitely one of the biggest movements or actions that I have been a part of. And within the Child Welfare League, I've had the opportunity to be a youth mentor for uh, children aid societies and children aid organizations all around Canada. So I've been able to give uh, colonialized Western settlers a better look into an Indigenous youth mind and a better idea of how they can help Indigenous families instead of continuously ripping these children away from their homes. And that's a lot of the work that I do with them. We speak about foster care children, children in group homes, and how we can keep these children out of these, I guess, buildings and institutions so that they can stay with their family and their culture. One movement that I hold really dearly to my heart, I started a Hamper Helpers initiative just this last Christmas. And it really sparked a need in my head because I remember doing a lot of those things when I was in high school, building hampers for different families. And I thought it was incredible, but what do families do that live on reservations that don't have these organizations who will come and bring you a hamper or schools that will provide these hampers? P women and families living on reservations don't get as many opportunities as we indigenous people get here in urbanized settings. So I made it my journey to ensure families within Indigenous communities get hampers. And there was multiple people, it was actually started as a Facebook group, but multiple people came out and donated stuff for these families. And then my grandfather helped me bring them to our community as there was a lockdown at the time. So I unfortunately couldn't go due to the fact that I would have had to quarantine. But as he lives up there, he just brought it over, delivered it for me. And the gratitude, the respect and appreciation that these families relayed back to me was more than I could have ever expected. The happiness and just the fact of me being able to help somebody in a position where I might need help one day truly warms my heart. You never know where you're going to be in five or 10 years. You never know where you're going to be when you have your own kids. And, you know, I was in a really tough point in my life when I was in my teenage years up until about 17. I had really, really big self-esteem issues. I had drug problems, alcohol addictions, this and that. And therefore, 
I didn't necessarily have the money to provide my family with gifts to do these things. And now that I am in a situation where I can provide my family and even others, that's, in my opinion, what creator had put me on this earth for, was to continuously show gratitude to others in case I ever need that gratitude back. And when I think of other families, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, I think it's really important that we take into consideration, you know, I've met lots of people along their journey who feel that addiction is a choice and that poverty-ridden people get lots of help. And really, that's just not the case. And people within that kind of situation, people who are in the situation who are not poverty-ridden, who, who just have extra money, they could be doing so many other things with this money that help so many different communities. And when I put this initiative on, I've seen that coming together. I've seen people who had abilities to help others actually do that. So I'm really hoping that we can continue this initiative that I started last winter, this winter as well. And I'm even looking at other, I guess, holiday months and stuff like that, Easter, whatever the case may be, any kind of family that ever needs help, I will be there for to help them in any way that I possibly can. That's beautiful and amazing. Do you ever feel like you're getting exhausted or do you know how to take care of yourself? It's a really great question. You know, I definitely, I definitely get exhausted. I get tired. I still deal with mental health issues. Like, I guess everyone has their own mental health journey. But when I look back at who I was a few years ago, and even just my age, I'm a very young person. A lot of my other friends are, you know, like partying, doing this, doing that. And sometimes it gets concerning that maybe I'm not doing the right thing. Maybe I'm not doing enough. And that becomes very tiring on my soul. It becomes very tiring trying to do the work of somebody who should be 30 because <laughs> a lot of the time I the people I work with are so much older and they continuously validate me and remind me that you know I'm just as important as they are but still you always have this little thought in your head like can you be doing more are you doing enough are you doing the right thing and I know that a lot of other activists and advocates folks out there probably have these same questions running through their heads they probably wonder if they're doing enough are they doing it correctly what can they change and a lot of the time I try to push that feeling back but that's necessarily not the right thing to do you know you can't just push your emotions back because eventually you'll just explode and I've come to learn that I try to now spend as much time as possible with my peers my friends my family members because they are what keep me sane they are reminding me every day that the work I do within the community is right no matter who tells me it's wrong the work that I'm doing is helping them no matter you know whether I'm helping a hundred people even if I'm helping one person or change one person's mind that's exactly why I do what I do Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that when we're thinking of our immense emotion and feelings, we need to remember that what you are doing is enough. You know, if you can change one person's mind or help one person's life, that's all that matters. Cause that one person will remember that. 
that one person will continuously bring what you said and say it to like 10 other people Mm -hmm. and then if they change one person's mind you've just changed two people's mind and if you're helping someone and you can only help one person that one person will remember it but that one person will take it upon themselves to go help another family and it's a cycle that's what I've started to notice it's a cycle and no matter how many people are negative that's never going to take away from the work that you've done I definitely am concerned sometimes I get very negative responses from people on social media social media warriors are probably the worst thing that an activist can ever come by and I used to be a very hot-headed person I try to (laughs) keep my uh, emotions at a very good level but sometimes you know it can still be a little too much and you can get aggravated and eventually there's just going to be people out there who are going to message you out of the blue and try and tear you down and it's not your job to educate the uneducated it's not your job to educate people who don't want to be educated my job is to educate people who want to be educated who are willing to learn not people who just want to try and challenge your ideas of what Canada is. So I think when it comes to your feelings and your mental health and your well-being, you just need to remember that what you're doing is correct, what you're doing is enough, what you're doing is valid, and if you ever come across somebody that doesn't feel that same way, you just need to block it out, whether you block them on social media or actually block them out from your head and <laughs> you can no longer hear them speaking, that's the only thing that's going to keep you sane throughout everything that tries to tear you down along this journey it's awful that there's so many people out there that are looking for conflict yeah speaking of social media there's a lot of pictures of you modeling can you tell us about you know how modeling has helped you raise awareness about indigenous issues yeah for sure I went into modeling in about 2018 right when I started my advocacy journey And it's always something that I've wanted to do. I just always struggled with insecurities, self-esteem, confidence issues. And I had the opportunity to model within a Indigenous arts and fashion show here in Ottawa. It was the sixth or fifth annual Indigenous legacy show. And my mother's best friend was a designer within the show. She asked me to model for her. I said yes, and that same day I got to model for two other designers, so three in total. My first time modeling, and boy was it scary, but I, you know, practice, 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 and the fact that I was able to bring Indigenous designs into this kind of industry made me so much happier. I always grew up looking at models in magazines and on TV and I never could picture myself there because I could never see myself within this industry. Mm-hmm. You don't actually ever really see indigenous models out there on, you know, the campaigns, flyers, whatever the case may be. And it starts to daunt a BIPOC person's mindset of can I make it in this industry? Can I actually do this kind of thing? 
And the more you think about that, the more your confidence goes down and down. Hmm. So when I got the opportunity to do this, I knew that this was something that I really enjoyed. And the fact that I was able to bring and represent my own people brought me a sense of calmness and a sense of gratitude. Throughout this journey, I've definitely had the opportunity to model for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous designers. And even just being able to work with non-Indigenous designers is something that I hold very close to my heart due to the fact that I may be in a urban outfit, but my Indigenous face is still there being seen. My Indigenous face is there reminding other Indigenous youth of the possibilities that this field can have us in. I've been able to represent looks for the missing and murdered Indigenous women issue. I've been able to help uplift many Indigenous designers. And I just most recently applied for Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto 2021-2022 either of them <laughs> um, but it's incredible to think back to when I started modeling in my first ever Indigenous fashion show and now I've applied for Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto. I've had the opportunity of walking in the Richard Robertson 50th grand premiere and I thought that that was like my most exciting experience but really if I am able to get selected for Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, then that is an even bigger platform for Indigenous peoples to be seen. And I've, I try to uplift as many designers as I possibly can, whether I've worked with them or not, because, you know, all of their designs, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, are so incredibly thought out and all of them have meanings to it. I, a few months ago, had walked or did a photo shoot for House of Harkonnen and she is all about uplifting plus sizes and the BIPOC people the LGBTQ people and uplifting all of the communities who are continuously pushed down. Harkonnen, Jessica Harkonnen had most of the time worked with plus size models and she specifically made a outfit to fit my body just so that she could have Indigenous representation within her photo shoot. And Jessica is the kind of designer that reminds me that although there are so many differences within this industry, there are so many ways to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. And I point on inclusivity because although my journey has been successful and beautiful and bright, there have been situations that weren't as pretty and weren't as colorful. I really struggled with eating for as long as I can remember. I thankfully overcome that now. But when I was in modeling, everyone used to, I guess, like hype me up, <laughs> as the kids say about like my size, saying that I was perfect for this industry. But then I came across two designers who actually took me off of their list due to how small I was. And when this happened, I was very conflicted because of everything I was hearing before from other models. 
telling me that I was perfect. I was this, I was that. And then I started to really feel bad about myself, bad about the fact that I wasn't curvier as that's something I've always wanted to be. I'm now 175 pounds and couldn't be happier within my own skin, could not feel more beautiful with who I am. But there's people like Jessica who will do whatever she possibly can to be inclusive. And then there's people who will take you off of their list due to the fact that you do not fit their ideal beauty standard. Hmm. And I think it's really important to remember within this kind of industry that it's not always pretty. And there will be situations where you question if you're good enough, just like advocacy. And I've really noticed that within my modeling journey, when I feel my most happiest and my most prideful is when I'm walking for designers who have a message for their pieces designers who are trying to send a message out to the world with their clothing, such as Jessica, such as uh, Trisha Monet, Elberlin Hill, Bruno Henry, and so many other incredible designers out there who want to be inclusive and impactful instead of just beautiful. And I think like that's the beauty of art too, right? Talking about art, can you tell us a little bit more about your beatings? For sure. I started beadwork back in 2017. And ever since then, I've been creating beadwork tutorials for different organizations around Canada, been creating beading kits for people who want to learn Indigenous and non-Indigenous as well. And most recently, I've gotten into resin work, which is, I guess, a hard plastic almost. Um, Starts as a liquid and then hardens over time. And I was really interested in resin work due to the fact that it's very urbanized. And I wanted to bring an urbanized jewelry type and mix it with our traditional ways of life. So within my resin work, I really include uh, the medicine, sage, sweetgrass, tobacco, cedar, as a way to capsule these medicines so that people can hold them for years to come and wear them on their body instead of just necessarily smudging with them. I know that there's a lot of controversy around non-Indigenous people smudging. So this is my way of, I guess, trying to stay inclusive for non-Indigenous peoples, allow jewelry that they can wear and feel empowered from and feel cleansed by instead of not necessarily using our sacred medicines to smudge and appropriate our culture. I've had many non-Indigenous peoples buy my beadwork, but then again, I've also had people who tell me that my prices are too high, that I need to lessen what I'm pricing my pieces at, that I need to this, that I need to that. And for all the artists out there who might have the same comments or, you know, responses said to them, I want you to just remember that If they want you to price your things for less, they should go and make it and see how hard it really is. See the time that it takes, the love that it takes to put into these pieces to get them right, and the frustration that it takes getting your finger poked by a needle every time you're beating. I think that people really downprice the work that Indigenous peoples do, and that's just not the way to go. I 
learned that when I was working at Manitoba Muckaluks, when we would have people come in wanting an indigenous made boot, which were our story boots at the time, all made by indigenous women and indigenous men around Canada. And these shoes, these boots were priced at about a thousand to $1,300. And it's because they were handmade, they had fur, they had beadwork. And then there were the, I guess, factory made boots that could range around 60 to $300. And still you will meet people who don't necessarily want to pay for a handmade boot, but don't like that it is made in a factory. And when you're trying to work with people to be able to have things that can be affordable, they need to remember the time that gets put into the non-affordable items that not necessarily everyone can buy. So just to finish off this question, never, never feel bad on what you're pricing your items for. Never feel ashamed or question yourself because your work is valued. Your work should be priced at whatever you feel your time is worth. And no one can tell you what you are worth except for yourself. I love that. So how can someone appreciate the Indigenous culture without doing cultural appropriation for someone that like doesn't understand the difference? Yeah, well, I think it all comes around like the question that I've heard a lot is, can we buy jewelry? Can we buy beadwork? Can we do this? Can we do that? And, you know, traditionally, yes, beadwork is something that we wear very often, such as these earrings, but that's not to say that non-Indigenous people can't purchase these items and wear them with pride as well. As long as your intentions are pure and respectful, I don't see an issue with purchasing Indigenous-made items. And we sell these items for everybody, not just our own communities. When it comes to the use of sage and sweetgrass and tobacco and cedar for smudging purposes, I think that it's very important to take into consideration the other kinds of herbs that you can use. There are so many different things that are not specified for Indigenous communities that you can use to cleanse yourself with. White sage is actually, there's a loss of it right now in certain parts of Canada due to the fact of overusage. And this overusage happens by non-Indigenous peoples and Sephora making witch kits and this and that and so many different things. But as long as your intentions are pure and you research the different things that you can use and even ask an Indigenous person, I don't see any harm in that. I've had multiple people that I don't even know DM me asking me different questions and I'm always like, ready to be helpful, to answer whatever I can as respectfully as I can. I had one young woman, I guess, ask me where she could buy sage because she wanted to cleanse her house. And I just respectfully explained to her that, you know, there are so many other herbs and things that she could use, but I recommend not using sage as that is specific to Indigenous cultures and Indigenous peoples. And it's a very sacred plant within our communities. So I guess it all goes like around the way that non-Indigenous people are using our products or are using our beadwork, our jewelry, whatever the case may be. As long as your intentions are pure, thought out and respectful, there's no issue.
I think that's a very important explanation because, you know, a lot of, I guess, allies specifically, like, want to be able to support Indigenous folk, but also don't want to overstep our boundaries, too, right? Yeah. So just a couple questions left. So the first one has to do with a current issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about the National Collaboration for Youth Mental Health and what happened with the charity leader? Yeah. <laughs> so... I guess for those of you that follow me, I'm sure that you've seen a lot of my posts on social media about my issue with this charity that I was working with uh, around November and January. Got introduced to this specific woman who I knew from this charity through a whole other organization that I was working with. The organization that I met her through has since confirmed to me that they will not be allowing her or anyone else they do not know to, I guess, target youth through them. So that gave me a sense of, uh, again, calmness and security and safety because that's where she had met me and another young woman. Uh, Since everything has gone on, I did speak to CBC about the ongoing issue. I was in a program called Daughters of the Vote in March, I would say. Um, I was in a program called Daughters of the Vote in March where I had the opportunity to take my MPC, Mona Fortier, I had the opportunity to speak in the House of Commons and the leader per se from National Collaboration for Youth Mental Health went out of her way to message the hosts of Daughters of the Vote, letting them know that uh, your delegate did some, like had some issues with us, da, da, da basically warning them in case like I tried taking them down I guess I don't know it's all very like taboo I couldn't even believe it I was very caught off guard I only found out about this email because the woman behind this all sent it out to not only the hosts of Daughters of the Vote but also to a young woman that I know we had a group chat of everyone involved in the situation And she posts in the group chat uh, saying, did anyone else get this email about Kirsten? Everyone responds, no. So I asked her to forward it to me because I had no idea what she was talking about. And it was the email that they had sent to Equal Voice, which is the host of Daughters of the Vote. I was very caught off guard. It was about a two paragraph long email. I could not believe it. I hadn't thought of this woman in weeks at this point. And she went out of her way to try and ruin my name and reputation again. And so I had to go out of my way to message Equal Voice and explain the situation. I attached the doc- or the article of where I spoke with CBC. I explained that this organization must have a vendetta against me because of me speaking out or whatever the case is. Therefore, everything that they said in the email is not true. And she is now trying to silence me and the other folks involved. And they were very respectful in their response. They told me that they found it in their junk folder, that they would not be giving it a second glance and that they were sorry for what myself and the other youth were going through. Mm. I appreciated it. It made me feel a lot better about the situation. But then a few, probably about two months later, I live in an apartment building and the, when people buzz my unit, it goes straight to my cell phone. It was about nine in the morning and someone had buzzed my phone. I thought it was very weird. I answered it. 
I asked who it was. They said that uh, they had something for my mother, Jessica Dumont. Thought it was very strange as my mother would never have anything sent to my house. Went downstairs to the lobby before letting anyone into my building. So I had no idea who this was. And basically I ended up receiving two large brown envelopes. Uh, one labeled Jessica Dumont, one labeled Kirsten Dumont. They both had my address on it. And she had threatened to sue me before. I did not actually think that she would go through with it, which now that I look back at it, it was a bit foolish to not be ready for this. But as soon as I got the envelopes, I knew exactly what it was. I knew it had to be from her. Got upstairs, started reading everything, and my heart just sank. She decided to sue myself, my mother, another young woman, the journalist, and the CBC itself, $20 million. Wow. Yeah. So being a 20 year old being sued for $20 million was quite, uh, quite exhausting. I could not believe it. I was almost fearful in a way for the first few minutes. And then I started to read through everything and her claims were absolutely ridiculous. I knew that there was no way that this could be like even passed through the court system. There's no way that the courts are going to be dealing with this as a lot of her claims are stuff that I can prove never happened due to my own like documentation of everything that was going on. I have a lot of proof of me actually quitting, not being fired me resigning from my position, which is one of her claims that she, or that I did not resign per se, as I claimed in my social media platforms that I actually got fired for insubordination, which was not correct. I sent three resignation emails out to her. She claimed that she never threatened the youth, which she did. And I've worked with multiple organizations, spoke with multiple like organizations at their events, and none of them were as unprofessional as this one is. Hmm. I unfortunately had I guess chose a lot of their speakers for an event and at this point I found everything out so did everyone else and I recommended that they either bow out respectfully or go through with it but if they decided to go through with it I would not be able to be there to support them um, due to the fact that I could no longer be associated with the organization because of what I had found out. Everyone bowed out respectfully. They all told this woman, Althea, that, you know, they could no longer do it. This and that, that something come up. And I've had situations where I had double booked myself or that I just totally forgot about, you know, a speaking engagement. And everyone has always been very understanding to me. Althea's response to these emails was that unless you are terminally ill or someone from your family died three days prior to this event and you can prove it, then you can no longer speak. Yeah, so basically send me a death certificate or you're still speaking, which is absolutely crazy for an organization that claims to want to benefit youth mental health. They were actually destroying it with multiple organizations. The ones I've worked with, at least, have always been very considerate of whenever I would speak on hard topics they'd be like are you sure Kirsten are you sure like this isn't going to trigger anything is it going to be okay and I would say yes 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 it's fine because I have faith in the organization itself for a lot of these youth they 
bowed out respectfully. I thought what they said was great. Unfortunately, did not end very well. When the conference did happen, I noticed that she actually stole multiple clips from other people, other creators. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of Notorious Cree, but he is a TikToker who does uh, viral dances, viral Indigenous dances. And they stole one of his TikToks or two of his TikToks from his platform. I was able to get in contact with him and asked him if he had gave them permission to do so, use his videos, or if he was actually planning on working with this organization. Told me he had never heard of the organization before. I showed him an article where they claimed that they would be like promoting him, basically saying that he was going to be speaking, this and that. And then later that day, it was about a three hour long video, but you can very easily tell which videos were self-recorded, such as, you know, this, or which videos were taken from a different platform. There was one video where there was a young woman actually being interviewed. She was clearly sitting at like within some kind of news station being interviewed. You can actually see the other person's hand on the corner of the screen. Um, so it's almost like they cropped it to get this woman's own perspective of it. And then I found out that not only did they steal, you know, like TikToks from people and news pieces, but they had stolen one of my own videos. And that was probably the biggest slap in the face I could think of before I received this lawsuit. I created a video for Algonquin College when they were planning or considering on working with National Collaboration for Youth Mental Health. They needed uh, promo videos to give to their school to show like, oh, this organization is good. So I spoke a bit on my own mental health struggles. I spoke about my sister and my like siblings mental health struggles thinking that it would only be shown to like a few people she stole the video without my permission that was supposed to be going to Algonquin College blacked out my face and just used my audio so and when I brought it up to her when I emailed her asking why my voice was in her conference she said that it wasn't that there was no indication that I was actually in the conference. At this point, I've let that situation go because I've come to learn that being the person that I am within the community, there's going to be a lot of situations where people use different clips. I am completely considerate of that at this point. But for an organization that I was battling with and then did this to me was a very big slap in my face, especially considering that I was speaking about my siblings mental health struggles who are only about 10 years old. I received the lawsuit, I guess. And after that, it's been pretty silent from her. She, three days before she actually sent out the lawsuit, she posted on Twitter under a comment to somebody that she was currently in a lawsuit with CBC. And she was, I guess, mentioning the one that I had received, grouped us all together, but it's just so insane. There's still people that follow her. There's still people that like are signing up for these ridiculous workshops. And I have never in my life had an issue with an organization up until this day. Hmm. This is the only organization within Ottawa and within Canada that I have had a problem with. And I think that goes to show how unprofessional they are. 
I have worked with so many organizations around Canada. I've been flown to Toronto to work with UNICEF. I've worked with multiple organizations around Ottawa as well. And still this one organization that is supposed to be about empowering BIPOC people is actually trying to destroy them. So for people that have no clue, who is that woman and what did you find out? So from what I'm aware of, and this is what I believe, just have to say that for legal purposes, I guess. (laughs) What I believe and what technically has been proven to me is the fact of the woman I was in contact with, who was Maxine Aduela, was actually an alias for Althea Reyes. Althea Reyes is originally from Toronto. She started an organization there called Equal Justice for Canada. Equal Justice had been proven to be fraud, fraudulent within the Ontario court systems. And then she moved on to NCYMH, National Collaboration for Youth Mental Health. It will say that it's been running for 18 years on their website, but they only became a registered organization in 2020 of June. Hmm. I got in contact with this woman in November of 2020. So there's just very little, little things that nobody would even notice unless they did the research for it. Althea Reyes is a victatious litigant, which means that she is no longer legally allowed to be in the court's room due to the fact that she has sued over 100 people. And she is now taking advantage of the legal system. This is one of the reasons why I do not think that this lawsuit will go any further than it has. From my knowledge and from what I believe, she filed this lawsuit under an alias of Kamala Tawari. If you Google me, you will find lots of information about me. You will find lots of photos, lots of articles, lots of different things I've been involved in. You will not find anything about Maxine Adwala. You will not find anything about Kamala Tawari. And you will not find anything about their executive director, Jacqueline Lawrence. While working there, I found out that Jacqueline Lawrence was not a real person. And that made my suspicions grow even stronger. I started to do a little bit of digging and I noticed that the photo that they had previously, it has now been taken down of their executive director. The woman looked very young. I have never seen someone so young be an executive director for an organization. I did a bit of researching. I checked out that other organization who somebody um, had led me to, to tell me that she had ran that one as well, which was Equal Justice. I found this same young woman's photo under their actors category. I messaged Maxine and a few other people I sent it to like multiple emails throughout this organization, but I questioned them as to why their executive director went by a different name on a different website. They decided to respond and tell me that she chose to use a different name for her acting career as lots of artists do. I understood that, but then she dug her own hole by saying that I should know this as Indigenous peoples use different names all the time. Oh, as an Indigenous woman, and I actually responded with this, I told her, as an Indigenous woman, I have never gone by any other name other than my birth name. 
other than my government name per se I was very taken aback that she would try to make comparisons between my culture and her fraudulent act a few months before the lawsuit came around me and my mother my mother was battling them to cease and desist the use of my name as they were posting multiple Google updates and comments and just everything trying to slash me. So my mother sent them a cease and desist saying, please stop using my daughter's name. Like this is getting ridiculous. They decided to respond to her saying that the trauma that I claimed to have endured by them was actually a, I guess, representation of my childhood with her. An organization had said this to a parent of a BIPOC youth. Never in my life have I heard of something like this happen. So then I got very furious because I did not understand why they were doing as much as they did. I went on to speak to my mom and then I challenged them again about their executive director because they told me that everything that I had known was incorrect, basically that I was crazy. I asked them again, if their executive director is real, why is that photo no longer there? Because they had taken it down. And the only reason why they took it down was because I actually got in contact with the young woman whose photo that belonged to. Oh, it wasn't even her picture. It, it was not the, it, it was a whole other woman's picture in Toronto, but they had it under a different name and she did not hold that title. I found the young woman whose photo that belonged to. And I asked her, I was like, do, do you work for these people? And I sent her screenshots of her photo under the title of executive director and with the name Jacqueline Lawrence. She said, that is my photo, but that is not my name. And that is not the title I hold. It took her about half a day fighting with them to get her photo removed because they asked her for identification that she was actually her this and that, which doesn't make sense. It's such a brain twister. And that's exactly what I think that she tries to do is make you confused in the own things that you're saying. Mm -hmm. When I brought up the fact that they took Jacqueline's photo down, she said that it was put up there accidentally. And I responded with, well, you could have taken it down when I addressed this a few months ago. They disregarded my email and sent me a cease and desist to stop talking to them. So lots of back and forth at this point, you know, I hadn't really heard from them for a few months, thought it was over. And that's when I got the lawsuit. The amount of concerning red flags that I have grown to learn about regarding this woman in the organization is, such a brain twister when the article came out in March so many people had said oh I can't wait till this turns out to be a movie this and that which is like it's when you think about it you only hear about this stuff in movies you never actually think like this is happening in my own city it's crazy to think of the fact that there's a woman out there frauding so many different people suing so many different people suing for 20 million dollars I just I cannot believe it she has sued Ashbury College she has sued Big Brothers Big Sisters Canada she has sued so many of her partners 
her employees, so many different people to the point where the courts had to label her a vexatious litigant so that she could no longer go there. And what her title means, it means that she has to go in front of a judge to be granted permission to file any kind of lawsuit, which is why she filed it under an alias. In Ontario, you can go by an alias as long as you're not doing anything fraudulent. So right now, what my lawyers are working on is to verify whether or not it is a real alias or not, whether it's a real person or not. And once they are able to verify that, then they can bring evidence to the courts proving that Althea Reyes is Kamala Tiwari, who is the one that filed this lawsuit. And once that happens, it should be able to get thrown out. But when I look at this situation, I start to wonder if it gets thrown out, what will she do next? Yeah. I don't see this stopping. I do not. There's an article where she ran over someone's foot with her child in the back seat and a grin on her face. I do believe that this woman has no emotion for human life. I do believe that this woman has no regard for human feelings. And the more that I think of what this woman is capable of, the more concerning it becomes. She has been doing this for years. I have had people message me after the article came out with CBC that told me they have been dealing with her harassment for several years. I've only been going through this for a few months and that's why I don't think it's going to stop. I just can't get it out of my head. What is going to be her next move? What is she going to do next if this lawsuit gets thrown out? It's, uh, it's quite crazy. <laughs> well, thank you for being so open about all that. I, I can't imagine how like, like the mix of emotions and of negative emotions that you must be feeling around this situation, but it's crazy. And crazy to think that people are getting away with it too you know like yeah you'd think like to a point like they're gonna put you behind bars right crazy so to finish off how can we better support and raise awareness to indigenous issues as allies i guess throughout the pandemic right now one of the main things that allies can do is just continuously share about what's going on in canada regarding Indigenous peoples, the boiled water issues, the missing and murdered Indigenous women statistics, the land issues, the pollution issues. And there's so many incredible people that folks can follow to stay up to date with concerns. And the more that you post these things or reshare them, the more the word gets out there. Indigenous peoples are only if I'm getting my statistics correctly, 4% of the Canadian population. Therefore, we can share whatever we want, but it gets heard even louder once non-Indigenous people start to share it and circulate it around. So the more that you amplify Indigenous issues, not only Indigenous voices, is when people around Canada can start understanding the truth of what their country has been doing for thousands and thousands of years mm -hmm. and what we are still doing like I remember I think maybe a year ago I found an article saying that there was the government 
or the health system was forced sterilization of um, indigenous women in the West. Like yeah. that would have never passed. Like it's against humans' right. And just like by sharing those things, I think it's so, so important. So thank you so much for opening up and being on here and sharing your voice with us. I appreciate that. Thank you so much the invite from both of you. I appreciate being one of the interviewees and having my voice heard and valued even more. So thank you so much, miigwech.